Hey there, Mike Stelzner. Before we start today's podcast with Seth Godin, I just wanted to let you know that social media marketing world is something that's probably a little more affordable than you realize. We have tickets that start at only $297. So if you've been hearing about the conference, your friends have been telling you about it, and you've always thought, man, I want to go, but I just can't afford it. Chances are, you probably can. So check it out by visiting socialmediaworld19.com. And now for today's show. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today's show is brought to you by Social Media Marketing World 2019, the conference you know you want to go to. Today, I'll be joined by Seth Godin, and we're going to explore some pretty deep concepts about why marketing isn't working today and ways that we can try some new things to really stand out in this crazy, noisy world. By the way, if you want to reach me, email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And now for this week's brand new discovery. Helping you stay alive in the social jungle. Here is this week's survival tip. This week, I'm joined by Eric Fisher with a brand new discovery. What'd you find, Eric? I found a really cool tool to release audio on the web called Get Dialogue. Get Dialogue. Tell me more. All right. So here's the cool thing. Remember when there was this tool called Blab we used to use way back in the day? Right. Essentially, it was video where you could pop in and anybody could pop in and you could let people jump in and be on video with you and you could have talking and dialogue and all that kind of stuff. Well, Get Dialogue is basically Blab minus the video. It's audio only and it works basically the same. So is it like a conference call? Yeah, it's, it's by basically like a public conference call. Like you can set it up ahead of time. You can create it when everybody's signed in. You can click, click go live and then you can send that link out and people can join in and listen and they can comment and then you can even let them join in and then their voice will show up in the live audio that's being broadcast out and they will be even in the recording if you want. So it's video conferencing without the video? <laughs> yes. So, so I guess, uh, dare I ask, what's the application here? I think the application is that this is one of those things where you could, again, you could have a live show, but it could be audio only, which uh, for a lot of people is still a hurdle. Like They're just like, you know what, I, I can't jump on a live video screen and I can't, you know, Bring I, I'm scared about who I'm going to bring in and what they're going to look like and that kind of a thing. So this is like a, almost like public Skype, it sounds like, yes, right? Yes, very much. So um, have you tried it? I did, yes. How's the uh, audio Jeff quality? C, yeah, Jeff C. and I tried it out. We went live and we, we put it out there. And basically you were able to, you know, we, he, he and I were talking and there was a couple people who showed up and they were listening and... You know, we we can download the audio of it after. So this is again a, one of those cool ways to do kind of what we used to do on Blab, and we now do a lot more professionally on Crowdcast for the Friday show that we do. But it's almost like lowest barrier to entry podcasting. Interesting for a lot of people. I think this this could be a really viable entry into people getting used to and getting their foot in the door with podcasting. 
And can you make it public or private? Yes. Yeah, you can you can be public, you can be private. Only those that have the link would know where to go to get it. Huh. You can post that link all over on your social channels and saying, hey, we're going live with da-da-da-da-da, you know, radio at this time of day. Join us as I talk with Mike Stelzner about whatever topic, and you can put hashtags in it and tweet it out or can you uh, Do you get the recording when it's done, or how does that work? Yeah, you get the recording afterwards that you can hit download, and, and you've got the audio. Huh. You can even record it locally again if you wanted to, but it, it'll record it for you. Fascinating. So, so where do we, what's the cost? Where do we find this thing? It's free and you can get it at getdialogue.am. Thank you so much, Eric. You're welcome. And now for this week's interview with Seth Godin. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today I'm joined by Seth Godin, and if you don't know who Seth Godin is, shame on you. (laughs) He is one of the greatest thinkers of our era. He's authored 18 books, including Tribes, Permission, Marketing, Purple Cow, and he's also a prolific blogger. His podcast, which I strongly recommend, and I can tell you I listened to every episode, is called Akimbo, and his latest masterpiece is called This is Marketing, You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See. Seth, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I know how much work it is to do this, and you keep showing up year after year, and I appreciate it. Well, it's just a great pleasure to talk to you today. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk a lot about marketing uh, with Seth. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Akimbo. Um, I would love to know, first of all, what's the story behind the name? And then what's what's been your experience with this show? Well, Akimbo is the word for a bend in the river. Mm. And then it became the word for bending your arm in a way that shows power. So one Wonder Woman is standing there on a building looking down on the bad guys. She's got her hands on her hips. That's called akimbo. Also, when you have your arms folded. And when it was time to name the podcast, uh, I knew that I wanted to have a name, not just be called Seth's Podcast, the way my blog is called Seth's Blog. And it's about bending the culture. It's about seeing the culture and, and how we change it. The other rule I had was that it needed to start with the letter A. And the reason is that many podcast apps still continue to list podcasts in alphabetical order. Mm. And so you're at a disadvantage if you call your podcast Zodiac 7. (laughs) Okay. So, and how long have you been doing the show now? I forget. It feels like it's been a year, but maybe not. It's just over a year. It's our 30th, uh, it's our third season. And uh, I think I've done 35 episodes or so, something like that. Now, I used to listen to your other podcast. You might have had others I don't know about, but you had one that was more of a recording of a school that you were teaching, I think. Is this your first, um, you know, what I would call intentional podcast? Yeah. This is my first real podcast. I'd been planning a podcast for 10 years. Wow. And the Startup School podcast was one of the most successful business podcasts of all time, even though I made the whole thing in two days, because I made it not as a podcast, but as an artifact of this event that I ran. And the folks who uh, carried that for me with no ads, it's still up there, came back to me and said, well, if you're ever going to do a podcast, now's the time. And I knew they were right. So I have uh, controversial ideas about the future of podcasting. My podcast is only 20 minutes long, has no guests. I don't read the commercials. I feel like it's a different sort of interaction. And uh, they were fine with all my rules, so I made it. How how has been the experience for you so far? I mean, what do you think about it? Well, it's weird to sit in the shower, which is where I'm now, 
uh, which is covered with foam, to record these things all by myself. Because huh. typing is something we're used to doing by ourselves, but speaking is not. Right. And so that part has been a fascinating shift. But I love the people we're reaching. We're reaching the right people in the right way. It's a drip-by-drip drip thing, which is my favorite kind. I don't spend any time or energy hyping it or promoting it. It's there for people who want it, and I'm privileged to be able to make it. Well, what's really cool about what you do, Seth, is it's obviously, you can't tell that, I mean, you must have these ideas. You, I'm assuming you have these ideas somewhat scripted when you record, or do you just riff? I um, write the show notes first. Okay. And so I know that I'm going to talk about seven things and I put links to them in the show notes and then I riff. I haven't written down anything before I start other than the show notes. What's amazing about what, what Seth talks about is it's deep stuff and it's the kind of stuff that I think you've been blogging about for a long time, but it's, it's more like deeper, the kind of things you, you write about. And what I really love about it is the interactive element at the end of the podcast where you have some sort of a call in and you get a chance to answer questions. So that must be kind of neat for you because for the longest time on your blog, as we've talked about in prior episodes, you chose to shut the comments down. How has it been interacting with the audience, even though it's not been live? Has that been an interesting experience for you? Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. You know, the, these are not comments. These are questions right. and they're non-anonymous. And those are the two key parts. If I had a similar interaction on my blog, it would be fine with me. The, um, the thing that's fascinating about the questions, they come from all over the world, mm -hmm. and there aren't that many of them. And really, I was nervous. Like, what? How would I screen fifty different good questions? But I've never gotten fifty good questions. And um, so the questions that do arrive are really good ones. And there have been one or two times when I haven't had enough. But in general, I really like the balance of who's coming in and what I'm able to handle. Well, I will tell you, I listen to 20 podcasts a week. I don't know if I've told people this, but I, I learned out as learned as an adult that I was dyslexic, and um, that's just the way that I love to consume your content. And I would strongly recommend to anyone who is really into um, listening to great content to listen to Akimbo, A-K-I-M-B-O. I I literally never miss it. Usually I'm listening to it within 24 hours of you coming out with it. Wow. So, Thanks. So, and maybe next time you'll submit a question. Well, you know what? I might be encouraged to now. <laughs> so um, anyways, thanks for talking about that because I, I kind of think podcast is one of those mediums we don't talk about very much. And I just think you're doing great things with it. Well, thank you. I want to transition over to uh, your book. This is marketing. Um, in the author's note, you said something really interesting. You said it's time to do something else with marketing to make things better. So what I wanted to ask is, what is it about marketing today that is not working that spawned you to put that in the author's note? Well, there are two parts. Part number one is some marketers are selfish, narcissistic, short-term spammers mm -hmm. who think that it's something they get to do to people as long as they don't break the law. They call senior citizens at home to sell them worthless collectible coins. They uh, try to hassle people, put them in a squeeze page, get them to buy something they don't want or need. And as a result, we have the second problem, which is that people who might be willing and able to make things better are hesitant to call themselves marketers, to do marketing, because they think the only way to do it is to be one of those scammer spammer people. 
And so I'm addressing, addressing both in this book. I think that we don't walk around saying all accountants are bad. We don't walk around saying that all operations managers are bad. And by a huge stretch, all marketers are not bad. All marketers who are doing work to make things better are using the culture to reach people who want to be reached and to offer them something they're glad to find. I think you're speaking a truth here that a lot of our listeners are going to resonate with because in in my industry, in the social media marketing world, I hear it over and over again. We often say marketers, they ruin everything, <laughs> you know, and as a result, algorithms come about, you know, to try to try to resist the marketing craziness, you know, that that often happens organically on the social platforms. And I'm curious from your perspective, and I know you're not super active on social media, but I also know that you are a, an incredible observer of patterns and you see things. And I, do you think social media marketers are in trouble? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'll expound on that, but yeah, please. You know, you know I used to run uh, a, a social network called Squidoo, and we were before Twitter. We were there at the early days of Facebook. We were before. Uh, Pinterest. And I went in fully ready to embrace no censorship, be responsible for your own words, uh, open, open, open. Mm -hmm. And we discovered within a week that as soon as you do that, trolls show up. And you can defend the right of good people to stand behind their words. But if you do that at the same time that you let anonymous pseudonyms do whatever they want, it's a race to the bottom. And so the problem is, as soon as someone says, the only thing I'm going to measure is how much money did I make today? Mm -hmm. And as soon as someone says, my identity online is disposable, then you have the recipe for a cesspool. And there's no way around it. Anonymity is a great way to protect victims in certain situations. But the rest of the time, anonymity is a huge problem. If someone walks into a bank with a clown mask on, they don't say, hi, can I help you? They call the police because anonymous people don't do good things at banks. Right. Unless it and happens same, to be Halloween and there's a four-year-old, right? <laughs> even then, you probably shouldn't go into a bank with a Halloween mask on. Okay. Where, so in social media, marketers who can call themselves whoever and whatever they want are anonymous. Right. And- so yes, we see fine behavior from the Procter and Gambles of the world online because they have a lot at stake. Right. But the person who's busy selling the flat belly diet and setting up sock puppets and trolling their competitors and tricking people, they're just drawn to this stuff and it makes it harder and harder for the good guys and the good women to make the impact that they want to make. So um, the subtitle of your book, which I mentioned in the intro here, is You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See. And um, I would love to know what do we need to see um, as marketers? What do you want to talk tell the marketers that are listening right now? You know, what is it we're not seeing that we need to learn to see? We need practical empathy, and practical empathy means I don't know what you know. I don't want what you want. I don't need what you need. Mm -hmm. I don't believe what you believe, and that's okay. That you don't need to be a woman to market pantyhose but you do need the empathy to let a woman who wants pantyhose want pantyhose. That when we can go to someone where they are 
and listen to them and see them and understand them and then say, I made this based on who I see and what I see and my guess about where you want to go. I made this. That means that we are marketing with people, not at them. And when we do that, people want us to show up. And that's the key. Okay, so a um, couple things I want to dig on, dig in on here. Um, you said we want to market with people, not at them. And um, are you speaking specifically to like young marketers who just came out of college and don't know a darn thing about the, the audience that they're they're marketing to, and they're just trying to take techniques that they learned in a textbook and apply it to the world? Or tell me more. I'd love to hear more about what you mean by market with people rather than at them. Well, so the first thing I'd say is that. Uh, Every marketing textbook I've ever read is terrible. Right. Every single one. And the reason, you know, all respect to Phil Kotler, but Kotler's book was important in 1990. It's not important now because it's based on the false idea that advertising and marketing are the same thing. And most marketers today do not spend money on advertising. Right. Therefore, we shouldn't base the whole thing on that construct. But in terms of with, for, and to, you know, I, I turned on a podcast the other day, and the the sponsor was Gillette, who is busy trying to catch up to Dollar Shave Club. And basically, they're saying, you should buy, you should subscribe to Gillette Blades. And if you listen to the reason why you should subscribe to Gillette Blades, the answer is because they need you to. Mm-hmm. Not because it's better for you, but because it's better for them. And that's not marketing with and for people. That's just yelling at them, which is what the big package goods companies were able to do for 80 years because they had our attention. We were captive. But now I'm not getting 3,000 marketing messages a day. I'm getting 30,000 marketing messages a day. So for me to pause and think about what you just said, would I miss you if you hadn't run that ad? That is what we're talking about, that it's all optional. And if you don't have my enrollment, you can't teach me. And if you can't teach me, I'm not going to learn. If I don't learn, I'm not going to switch. And you got nothing. Uh, Lenovo, the uh, computer company, is one of your sponsors of your podcast. And I noticed something quite fascinating um, that you're doing on your show, which is you you have um, an ad in the beginning and in the middle of the show. And the one in the beginning just seems to start with a story of a person like a business person and then and then there's a stick around to hear the rest of the story and then later on that business person was enabled by Lenovo is that an example of marketing with people rather than at them I you know I had nothing to do with creating the Lenovo ads I have approval over all the ads on the podcast right I love those ads yeah and I have voluntarily listened to the end of the story because listening to the end of the story makes me happy right they that that is it's not oh here comes that ad again it's oh good here's that ad again that's the incredibly important distinction that we're talking about you can't interrupt people and hold content hostage doesn't work that the only you know i don't know about your podcast reader but mine has a button that says 30 on it and if you press the 30 button it goes forward 30 seconds right and people aren't afraid to use that button And on YouTube, it's a thousand times worse. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, if you wouldn't be missed if you were gone, please acknowledge that you're already gone. So what it means is we have to create products and services 
that matter to people and then tell true stories about them that people want to hear. Excellent. Um, chapter 10 of your book is on trust and tension. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how, first of all, we can engender more trust, but also how tension kind of comes into play here. So all marketers do, the only thing we do is we make change happen. If there's no change, there's no marketing. Well, then we're just wasting time and money. Change requires two things. One, someone's making us a promise. Do we listen to the promise, which means have we given them attention? And do we trust the promise? Because if someone makes us a promise that we don't trust, there's no promise. If the promise is made and there's trust, tension is created. And the tension is, what will I tell my spouse? What if it doesn't work? What if I change into someone who I don't like? What if I bring this into my organization and my boss doesn't like it? And on and on and on. All of these what ifs cause tension. And we know that human beings, before they buy anything or change anything, their heart rate goes up. They feel stressed. So what marketers do is we intentionally and willingly create tension on behalf of the person we are seeking to change. Because then when it's over, we want them to say thank you. So if I go, last week I got a flu shot. Just before I get a flu shot, I feel stressed. I'm tense. What if it hurts? What if there are side effects? What if it doesn't work? And at the end of the flu shot, I turn to the nurse and I say, thank you. I'm glad I got this flu shot. That cycle is exactly what happens before we do anything that is marketed to us. So is there like an order of operations here? I mean, like we have to establish trust, obviously. I would imagine in order to, unless it's just one of those things where it's the only option, you know what I mean? And I have a need and it's my only option and I don't even know who it is, who makes it. But generally speaking, you said, you know, we live in this world of 30,000 messages a day. So I would imagine people will buy from more likely those who they trust. But I guess what I'm struggling with a little bit is like, how, how in the world are we intentionally creating tension? Is it subconscious? I mean, help me understand more. Well, so I can give you uh, many examples. Here's one. Uh, you have a podcast. A new episode's going to come out soon. Do I want to skip it or do I want to listen to it? Right. The fact that you made a new episode caused me to have tension because mm. I have to decide, will I use my time on this or will I choose not to? And if I don't, will I feel badly because someone will ask me tomorrow what I thought of your episode and I'll say, I didn't listen to it. Tension is created. That's what marketers do. So the tension can be something significant, like uh, we're having a going out of business sale. The door closes tomorrow. Are you going to come in today, or will you just miss it all? I see. It can be something like, um, will you enroll your kid in private school? The deadline is tomorrow. That's a big decision. The fact that the private school exists caused you to have tension. If there was no private school, you wouldn't have tension about it. Right. And too often marketers try to make all the tension go away because it feels like if we can just slide on by, we'll be fine. So if you're sticking with Tide, if you buy Tide every time your laundry detergent runs out, you are doing it because you don't want to waste time and energy and tension on picking a new laundry detergent. It's easier to just stick with Tide. So that's the core of Procter & Gamble's business is no tension. But if they show up and want you to switch, 
you know, the, we keep uh, two bottles in my office at the sink. We have uh, Ultra Joy and Non Ultra Joy. <laughs> okay. And Non Non Ultra Joy actually says on the label Non Ultra Joy. But it's by the same manufacturer. Yeah. Okay. Be- because what happened was there was just regular Joy, and Joy was the laundry soap, the, the dishwasher soap of choice okay. for millions and millions of people. But then competition heated up. So they had to come out with a better version that had more sudsing or lower sudsing or something. I don't know. So they invented Ultra Joy. But there was this huge outcry from people who said, no, don't take Joy away. So they said, all right, you can have non-Ultra Joy, which is the original Joy. And that creates tension alone, just that name. Like, who wants non-Ultra Joy? Exactly. And I actually spoke to the P- – I, call, I called the 800 number on the back of the bottle – and I called, I think it's P&G, and I called them up and I said, what's up with non-Ultra Joy? Right. And it was a, it was a dedicated phone line just for Joy. It's not like I got oh all gosh. soaps at P&G. It was just the Joy line. And it was a fun conversation about the fact that, yeah, they understand. They have empathy for the person who says, my life is complicated enough. Just give me the joy I'm used to. That's why I come back. That's a fascinating concept. I can see having a premium product and then having the non-premium product literally called non-premium. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that could be very, that could be quite effective, you know, to get people to go for the the more effective. And let me guess, the is the non-Ultra Joy actually the same price as the as the Ultra Joy? They're uh, both $2.39. Yeah. Fast. But Ultra Joy, you get like an eighth of an ounce less in the bottle. The bottle's a little smaller. I see. So fascinating. Um. From your perspective, you know, so much of marketing right now is, um, you know, as you mentioned, it's a lot more than just advertising. And I'm curious if there's any businesses, small, big, any size that you feel seem to be doing marketing well these days, because, you know, um, obviously we could go back in time and talk about a lot of these stories, but now we live in an era where there's a bazillion channels and it just seems that um, it's harder to be seen. And I'm curious if there's any particular ones that you wrote about in your book or that you maybe once no one has even heard of before that might inspire people. Well, so it's important to for me to describe how I, someone posted something the other day about how well researched my books are. That's ridiculous. There's no research at all in my books. I just notice stuff. Right. That if something is working, I got to find out why it's working. Because if it's working and I don't know why, then I don't really understand how marketing works. So when you ask me, are there any businesses today that are working? I could say, name any business that is working, and I will explain to you through the lens of this book why. So Supreme, which sells $3 t-shirts for $64, has a line out the door. Why do they have a line out the door? Penguin Magic sells tens of millions of dollars worth of magic tricks online, and you've never been there. Uh, I was just gave a speech today for a company that he, the CEO said, we've been at this for a few years, just three years, and we did $12 million in revenue last year. Wow. And the way he does it is he only has one kind of client, and other kinds of institutions come to him and say, can we be your client? He says no. So in all three cases... I'm seeing a modern form of marketing, not the marketing of average stuff for average people. So what does Supreme sell? Supreme does not sell t-shirts. Supreme sells status. Ooh, I it like sells that. Okay. stuff for insiders. And if there was no line, 
their stuff wouldn't be worth anything. So they intentionally make less than they can sell. They intentionally are open fewer hours than they should be to create the line. And I, I've been there and I've talked to the people in the line. Most people in the line will sell what they bought within 20 minutes. So wait a second. This is a physical store then is what you're talking about. Is that right? They have The only way to get to, to Supreme Item is to go to one of, I don't know how many stores they have, not many, to go to their store and wait in line for hours until they are sold out and then you get nothing. And they change their product line every week. Wow. And so, and their, their logo is this huge aggressive word supreme and a really obnoxious typeface. And there's no style or craftsmanship to what they make. It's simply, here it is at its rawest form. I have supreme and you don't, you're a loser. Now, <laughs> okay. most people don't want supreme, but there is a tiny group of 17 year olds who desperately do. And that's who this is for. So and they have... So yeah, go ahead. So in this particular case, they're creating custom shirts just for a week, limited supply, and uh, when they're gone, they're gone. And do they not open up again for another week? I I don't know all of the details, but my right. understanding from my seventeen-year-old sources is that I think it's Thursday wow. is the day that it's worth going to the store, <laughs> and the rest of the week it's just scraps. That's crazy. So what, what, okay. I don't know if you're going to say anything else about Supreme, but I would love to also hear about the next, the Penguin Magic example right. as well. So Penguin Magic understood something with deep empathy, which is this. Professional magicians don't need any more tricks because they have a new audience every night. They have 20 tricks. That's all they ever need for their whole life. Amateur magicians need new tricks all the time because they have the same audience. They're long-suffering friends and family. Mm. And so they've got to constantly get new tricks. So so uh, Penguin built a website where they show you the trick being performed on video. And the only way to find out how it's done is to buy it. Smart. And they launch about 100 tricks a year. And they sell millions of dollars of them to a tiny group of people who are getting joy, not ultra joy, but joy from the interaction. And maybe they even perform the trick, but that's not the point. The point is they are part of a tribe, part of a group. They know who the insiders are. They know who the outsiders are. Penguin intentionally creates tension. The tension of, that's impossible. I can't believe that just happened. I got to find out how it's done. Wow. That's tension, right? And, um, you know, I could give you an example from 50 years ago. The Grateful Dead was the number one touring band in America 10 times, 10 times, number one. And yet they only had one top 40 hit their entire career because they weren't trying to make average music for average people. What they were doing was saying to the family, come, we're going on tour. And the family, the fans would go to 20 or 30 shows a year, right? You don't have Rolling Stone fans or Van Morrison fans going to 20 or 30 shows a year, living on a bus, following them around. Right? So again, insiders and outsiders, why, 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 I mean, I don't know if you got a chance to experience Grateful Dead. I've never been there, but why in the world would people do that? Well, I, I did. I didn't live in a bus, but I saw Jerry and then I saw them without Jerry and I own more than 200 Grateful Dead albums. Wow. Um, the reason is for me different than for some people. For me, it's a different kind of jazz. It's this, uh, heartfelt yet mathematical freewheeling interplay on the edge of creation. 
And every time you go, it's going to be different. And every time you go, it's going to be the same. And you get to watch this happen before your very eyes. And to have an artist with the guts to do that 100 or 200 nights a year, to, to know that they failed, they, they tried something for eight minutes and it just didn't work. And then a minute later, they're back up there creating this new thing that had never existed before, right before your eyes. That was a very cool thing to, to witness firsthand. On the other hand, most of the people who went, went because it felt like the best possible Thanksgiving dinner with the people you cared the most about anytime you wanted to have it. So it was an experience, obviously. In many, yeah. in many of these cases, it sounds like the same deal with the Supreme example, right? I mean, probably part of the, part of the mystique is standing in line. <laughs> Am I right? Well, that was the mystique. But now it's shifted because, as I said, the people who are standing in line are just doing it to make $30 an hour. I They're see. flipping. I see. And so if you buy it from a flipper, you've gained even more status because you're saying to your friends, I am too important to have waited in line. I just paid. And so they created a status symbol with, with no diamond in the middle, no luxury leather, just the status part. Wow. And one of the things I talk about in the book that's super important is status does not mean status symbol. Status is everywhere. It's who eats lunch first, who gets to drink from the oasis, who's up and who's down. And we look for status all the time. So if you go to a meeting at work, who sits at the head of the table? Who talks first? Who gets to be CC'd on a memo? And who do you think is being BCC'd? Who has the influence and who doesn't? Then when we look at Insta, this guy has 500,000 followers. This guy has 300,000. Who has higher status? We don't ask if they're sock puppets, we don't ask if it's working. The math goes straight to part of our brain that goes, uh-oh, I'm behind. Tension is created. Why did you decide to write this book at this time? Because I know you've written a lot of books and not all of them have been marketing, but just why did you choose to do it this time? Yeah, so I haven't written a real marketing book uh, in more than five years. And I did it because I started an online seminar called The Marketing Seminar. That has been super effective. 6,000 people have taken it. It's intensive. It lasts for months. And I got to watch people interact with my 50 video lessons. And as they interacted with them, I made them better and I learned things. And finally, I realized, wow, there are some people who don't want to pay 600 bucks for this, but need to hear it. And I have this testament, this thing that I've accumulated over 30 years. I'd like to give it to people in a format that's easy for them to share. And so that's why it's in this magical uh, Proustian book form. Because when you touch a book and hold a book or put a book on your shelf, it stands for something. And so what I'm trying to do is give people this thing in this moment of time when we are finally leaving the old thing behind. And I'm saying to people who have a change they want to make, who want to make things better, talk about this with your peers. Talk about this with your team. Because these methods, these concepts taken together are at the heart of how we are building and changing our culture now. Did you decide to do an audio version of this book? I did. It almost killed me. It's um, Really? Tell me more. That, well, <laughs> I used to be, a, I was, I was uh, disciplined in an undisciplined way. Uh, an audio book lasts about six or eight hours. And I used to read them in one day. Wow. And the producers at the recording studio thought I was crazy 
because your voice is not made to do that. Like we can talk for eight hours, but we can't read out loud for eight hours. It's very hard. And over the years, each time I did it, it got harder and harder for me to recover. So this time I built the studio, the one I'm talking to you from now, just by putting foam in the shower in my office and decided to read it 20 minutes at a time and to read it over the course of a month. And that would let me be fresh and present. And after five days, I got a little bit of a virus, but also I was out of practice. I completely lost the ability to speak. Wow. And for three days, I couldn't even make a croaking sound. (laughs) And I really believed that I had done permanent damage to my larynx, that it was, that I mean, I just, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. It was terrible. And I went, uh, I found this guy who's a, a world specialist at this and he was able to squeeze me in. I did five hours with him over the course of one weekend to retrain the way I hold my voice and the way I breathe when I talk. And fortunately, I got back at it and finished on an up. The last chapter is even better than the first one. So if you like audiobooks, I really hope you listen to this one because I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it. Well, I, you know, because of your experience in the book industry, I am curious, do you find these days that audiobook consumption is rivaling um, physical book consumption? And I, you notice I said physical book, um, sure. you know, not counting Kindle in there, but do you find that audiobooks are, what's been your experience? Is it like, uh, you know, is it Kindle and then audio and then physical? Uh, audiobooks are on fire. And the only reason they're not more on fire is podcasts. Mm. That podcasts are solving for a lot of listeners the nonfiction problem for free. Um, but audiobooks are, uh, because they are propelled by the, r- the reader of the book, not the listener, they match the tone of our times. Because a lot of times people will be reading a book And they'll say, oh, I wonder if I got any email. And they'll put the book down and go check. But with an audio book, the audio book feels like it's going to keep going without you. So you let it drive. And that idea that we can propel it forward by reading to people, I think it's a totally different experience. I listen to a lot of audio books now, and I know that I consume the ideas very differently when I let the author drive the conversation. And sometimes I find it thrilling. And other times it depends on the work. I need to be able to go back and highlight and stuff, which can't do with an audiobook. So I'm glad audiobooks are here. And uh, economically, audiobooks are a boon if you're thinking of making content because people are willing to pay for them. Uh, and the fact that there's only one significant distributor and you don't have to worry about physical goods makes it a really compelling place to be as well. B- blogging. You've been blogging for how long now? 12 years? 15 years? More, more than 12 years. Probably 20, but before that it was an email newsletter. Wow. Um, how do you feel blogging has changed over the years for you? I know you're, I think you're still doing it every day, if I'm not mistaken, or almost every day. Is that correct? 7,433 in a row. Oh my uh, Every single day. I limit myself to one. Sometimes in the old days, I used to do three, which was really crazy. Uh, I would blog every day even if no one read my blog. And I think everyone should do that because it forces you when you go to bed at night to think about the fact that tomorrow you need to say something worth reading. You need to do it with your name on it and you need to generously share it. And that constant uh, cycling 
propels my work more than just about anything. I mean, if I was doing just a book a year, I could go three months without thinking a big idea. But if I have to blog every day, I love that privilege of being able to show up in that way. In terms of the way they're being consumed, uh, Google is really trying to kill blogs. Really? They, they built an RSS reader that put all the other RSS readers out of business and they shut it down. Right. And they have built filters into Gmail so that for people who subscribe to blogs by email, the blogs aren't showing up in their inbox anymore. Google is willfully shunting them aside so that people don't read them. And the reason is because Google can't organize blogs and Google can't run ads on blogs because they're an email. So it's not part of their business model. They're much happier if people are bumping into content that they're sending them to on demand. And I don't think it's a, you know, a grand conspiracy, but when I've called them out on my blog about this, I've got nothing but email from bloggers who agreed with me with plenty of evidence that Google has done nothing to make it more likely that people will find and subscribe to independent voices. And I think that's really a shame. Now, I know that you said that you would write even if no one was reading. Um, for those that aren't maybe skilled at writing, I kind of wonder whether or not creating like short Instagram stories expressing their thoughts verbally is a similar kind of practice. What are your thoughts on that? You know, just recording a little audio or video every single day because it seems so easy now on Instagram and maybe even on YouTube with vlogs. Do you find that repetitive practicing of verbalizing a message for those that aren't writers is a similar kind of experience? Well, I guess I'd start with this. If you had a kid and the kid said, I don't need to learn how to read because I can just watch videos, I think you would be very disappointed with that. Right. Um, learning to write isn't a gift, it's a skill. And learning to write still, and I think for the rest of my lifetime, is gonna be the secret to unlocking value. Hmm. Video and audio cannot be scanned. They are very difficult to um, search. AI will make that a little bit better, but the fact is, if someone sends me a 200 or 500 or 5,000 word item, I can quickly tell what it's about and if I wanna spend time on it. But if you send me a link to a nine minute video, I'm not even gonna open it because I don't have nine minutes right. to figure out if this is worth anything or not. And part of the problem with easy in, easy out is that if all you're doing is holding up a selfie stick and recording a three minute video, you don't activate the same part of your brain, most people don't, than if you're gonna have to sit down and write something that someone's gonna read three years from now. So yeah, the snapshotting of the world is not a bad thing. Snapshots of my godson make me very happy. But there's a difference between a snapshot and an essay that changes your life. Well said, well said. Seth, if you want people to check out your new book, This Is Marketing, or your seminar, um, where would you love to send them? Oh, I made it easy. Uh, my new my blog is on a new platform. It's S-E-T-H-S, Seths.blog. And if you go to Seths.blog slash T-I-M, there you will find a bonus video, another bonus video, some links to the book, and other juicy stuff. So it's all going to be there, living there, and then you're only a click away from 7,344 blog posts as well. And if they want to check out your uh, course, is there what can they find it there as well? Yes, it's at themarketingseminar.com, but it starts in January, uh, and the link for the sign-up list is right at sess.blog slash TIM. 
Seth Godin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your amazing wisdom and insight with us. A total pleasure. Thank you for doing this, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's interview. I know I did. If there was anything that we talked about and you missed, show notes are at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 328. Also, don't forget, Social Media Marketing World 2019. Very affordable ticketing options. Simply visit socialmediaworld19.com. This brings us to the end of of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I promise. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner.